Hey everybody, welcome to Fresh from the Hill, Inside Stories of Noteworthy Cornelians. My name is Alex Zalvin, class of 99. I'm your host for this particular episode. If you would like to find out more about the show, alumni.cornell.edu slash youngalumni, or head to the Facebook page, Cornell Young Alumni Programs, to find out about upcoming events, news, volunteer opportunities, and more. On this episode, our guest is Anunko Labamba Kasango. Did I get that right? You did get that right. Woo! All right. <laughs> Two times. Uh, and <laughs> normally we say what year everybody graduated, but you are both 08 and 15. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You went back for a master's degree at Cornell, so there's a lot to talk about with you. Uh, but to give a little bit of an intro, uh, you're known, aka Samus. Yeah. That's also the name <laughs> you're known by. Uh, you're an Ithaca raised, Philadelphia based rap artist, producer, and PhD student in the Department of Science. And technology studies at Cornell University. Yes. Uh, your songs are awesome. Oh, thank you. Uh, they're fantastic. I, <laughs> you have so many different aspects of your background. I don't know exactly where to start, except yeah. we should probably start. You were raised in Ithaca, right? I was raised in Ithaca. Yeah. So it's been it's interesting because I've seen Ithaca in so many different ways. Like as a kid growing up, and then as a Cornell undergraduate student, and then as a graduate student <laughs> um, so it has all these different dimensions depending on like what what era of my life um, but growing up there it was cool um, it's it's whenever I, I meet new people and talk about my Ithaca experience they're always like wow that was so that's that's really unique that's not what my high school or like middle school experience was was like because everyone was into so much different stuff like everyone I know was doing so many different things people were playing soccer, but also making films. And so I think growing up in that environment, um, I just naturally started to do a lot of different stuff and never really questioned whether it was, was weird or not. So I like making music. I like playing video games. I like playing volleyball. All that stuff found a place in my life. A lot of Cornell students, and honestly, I would count myself in this, really live in that bubble of going to Cornell. You spend time in College yeah. Town. Maybe you venture out into Ithaca a little right. bit, but that's it. <laughs> but so what was your experience going in the other direction, going from living in Ithaca to going to Cornell? It was, it, well, it was funny because so many folks from Ithaca end up going to Cornell. I'm not sure if this is the case every year, but in my year, it just felt like a big high school reunion. <laughs> um, so, you know, in that way, I didn't, I didn't have, I think, a lot of the same challenges that I'm sure freshmen often have coming in, or not just freshmen, but students who are coming in from, from a wide variety of places in terms of, you know, like loneliness or isolation or, you know, I miss my family or I miss all these things. Like I could just go home and get some food <laughs> or go and say hi. So I think in that regard, um, the experience was, it wasn't a super big break for me. Um, but yeah, I, I, I did find that I, I had to like, you know, actively take time to meet other folks mm -hmm. and like push myself to go beyond that bubble. Um, but once I did, I felt I didn't feel like I had to choose between my like Ithaca-ness and my Cornell-ness. Gotcha. Well, <laughs> what was your course of study the first time you were at Cornell? So I started in sociology. Um, I just liked some of the classes and, and kind of continued taking them. Uh, and then I took a class that was cross-listed in sociology and science and technology studies. Um, and it was called What is Science? taught by Trevor Pinch. And... Um, it's funny because I just taught about the, the Moog synthesizer today and uh -huh. what we talked about in that class was what made me 
think, oh, wow, I'm actually really interested in science and technology studies. So we discussed um, kind of the social construction of the synthesizer and how there were different models of the synthesizer that, that were emerging at the same time. And one model sort of proliferated as like a commercial success and one didn't. We talked about the reasons why that that, that happened. And as someone who I had been playing with music, I'd been making beats on my laptop kind of independently of anything going on, but I didn't have formal musical training. So I never thought that music or sound was something that I could study. And then suddenly it was like, oh, there's like a way into this that doesn't require me to have this sort of formal musical training. I can think about it in terms of the technology that produces it or scientific principles, that kind of thing. So after that, I started taking a whole bunch of classes that were both like cross-listed in science and technology studies and sociology. And I had taken enough that I think, I think the administrator in STS actually reached out to me and was like, you've taken so many of these classes. <laughs> I think you should just major in this. Mm -hmm. So I double majored in STS and sociology, basically just by default, like having taken that many classes. Do you, do you feel like, is music your main thing? I mean, I guess mm -hmm. at that point was music your main thing as well. No, it was, it was like one of a couple different interests. So I was in some like student leadership groups and, you know, I hung out with friends and I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And, um, so it, it was something that I would do, um, kind of, you know, in free time when I had a, a little bit of free time or I was procrastinating, <laughs> I might start making like a song, but, but it wasn't something I really fully pursued. I did. I do remember that I started to meet other folks who were thinking about taking music a little bit more seriously mm -hmm. at that time. And that encouraged me to feel like, oh, this is something that I can uh, pursue beyond just, you know, once every three months coming back to making a little song and then going back into my, my work. Um, but it, I didn't take it super seriously at that time. What, this is definitely going to show the bubble that I was in at Cornell, yeah. but it, it felt like I was very into the comedy bubble. You know, yeah. I was in the sketch comedy group. I was very focused on that scene and the comedy scene. Yeah. I was also very well aware of the acapella scene because yeah. I was kind of omnipresent. But what was the music scene like for you at Cornell? It's hard to so I wasn't I wasn't actually that deeply involved, I think, in in like scenes where folks were making music. It was sort of like a an, uh like a insular experience. But I, I did. So my freshman year, I lived in Jam, which is a program mm -hmm. house for, for music, <laughs> for folks who, who love making music. Yeah, but it was it was interesting because I didn't think of myself as a musician. So I never like went out on a limb and was like, hey, listen to my music. I would make all these beats in my my room like with my, my roommate. And then I never really shared it beyond <laughs> that, even though I was in like the ideal space to, mm -hmm. to share those things. So I didn't I don't think I had stepped into my identity as a musician enough to sort of venture out and, and like hang out with other musicians or see stuff beyond like acapella. I think when my, my friends was when they were in like acapella groups or shows, I would go and support them. But I didn't I didn't like go to see any like bands or groups in particular beyond like the big shows where everybody would go and at like Barton Hall or something like that or like Slope Day. When was your first performance then? My first performance was actually after I graduated. Um, it was in 2000, end of 2009. I was in Houston, Texas, um, and I started, it, I was in the program Teach for America right after I graduated. So this was probably halfway through the, it's a two-year um, teaching commitment, so it was halfway through the, the, um, the commitment. And I started making music, and I 
you know, have been sort of compelled to share some of the music that I made. And I, I always tell people this, my first performance, it's on YouTube, you can find it, it's terrible. I like run out of breath halfway through <laughs> and I was like flailing my arms. It was just, it's just a horrible, horrible performance, but <laughs> I leave it online so that I will always remain humble. <laughs> See my humble beginnings. <laughs> what was it like getting up on stage the first time for you? Oh, it was, it was horrifying. It was so terrifying. I remember in the moments leading up to it, I kept asking myself, why am I doing this? Like no one is forcing me to do this. And I feel this like pit in my tummy and I've been anxious all week and I can't focus and I can't sleep. And, but I'm the one who's done this. <laughs> so like, why? So I was kind of like, you know, beating myself up. And then after it was over, even though it wasn't, I don't think it went very, very well. I felt this like relief and this excitement, this, this like joy that I've been able to push myself to do something that was really scary. Um, but like it felt good and the audience was very supportive too. So that, that helped. I'm glad I wasn't like in front of a bunch of hipsters who were <laughs> going to tear me apart. It was, it was all nice folks. One thing that I think people don't talk about, they talk about that first time getting up on stage, but they don't talk about the second time getting up on mm. stage, which in a certain way is almost harder to keep going with yeah. it. What was it out of that first performance between the first performance and the second performance that kept you going? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So, I mean, I think first was just the exhilaration of having done this thing, this like thrill of like accomplishing a task. But um, I think one thing that I did learn at Cornell was like, you know, just focusing really intensely on something. So after I had that first performance, I, I filmed it, obviously, and I, I watched it and I went back with my friends and we talked about like what I could improve for next time. And like um, I, I found a great community in Houston of other musicians and actually two of them, they were two um, hip hop artists and they invited me to go up. They had a set and they said, you can come up during our set and perform like two songs. So they allowed me this opportunity to do that in front of a much bigger audience than I would have been able to get on my own. And, you know, I, I probably still flailed a little bit and, and ran out of breath, but I had some better understanding of, of what my body was, was doing and what I wanted it to do. So I think in that second time, um, I was more like cognizant of what I was doing. Um, I think the first time I didn't have really any control. It was just like, get through it, get through this thing, get through this thing. And then the second time I was like, okay, what? You're a little bit more comfortable. You know the words, you've done this before. Like, what are you doing with your arms? Like, what are you doing with your voice? <laughs> Why did you choose to go there? Why did you choose to go there? So it was a little bit more control. You, nowadays, and, and I've read you, uh, you talked about this a little bit, but you've been kind of lumped in with nerdcore rappers, mm -hmm. but you don't feel like you're exactly a nerdcore rapper. Yeah. Uh, when do you feel like you started to develop an identity or your own identity as an artist? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, well, I would say that it was, it, I intentionally tried to create an identity as an artist once I realized that I was kind of being put in this, this box of like, you are only a geek rapper who can only talk about video games and cartoons. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, no, I resist that. I rebuke that. So I, I essentially, um, made a decision that I wanted to make a project that veered very far from that and that spoke very personally about things that I was going through in my life to, to share sort of the breadth of my experiences. And so I made it um, an EP in 2016, or I released it in 2016 at the beginning of the year. And the explicit purpose of that was to almost like rebrand me as, a, as a, an artist because the art, the album I had made prior to that 
was a project that was like a video game inspired EP. And so a lot of folks had found me through that project. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to do something that was like, that just completely broke away from that and um, kind of opened up like who I was as a person. Well, let's take a step back then and talk about yeah. that first project. What was it about video games in particular that inspired you? Yeah, so it was it was a particular video game. It's a video game called Metroid that's very important to me because it has one of the first playable women characters in it. Um, and so I, I remember playing this game as a little kid on the Nintendo with my older brother. Um, and the character is in an armor suit, and so you can't tell what they look like throughout the entirety of the game. And then at the end of the game, after you beat the boss, this like giant disembodied brain, and you get through, you know, everything's blowing up and you get make it out to the end, the armor suit comes off and you learn that it's it's a woman. The person you were playing with is a woman. And this was like, you know, plot twist of the century for me as a kid. Like, what? I cannot believe this. I was freaking out. Um, and so a little bit, you know, when I got older and I started making beats, I remember sometimes there would be this pushback and, and often from like men who would come to my shows would, would be like, you know, who made your beats for you? And then I would say, I made my beats. And I still would find that they would question who made my beats or, or try to find ways of like testing my, my technical expertise. And so I, I wanted to take on the identity of this character, Samus from Metroid, because I think she plays with gender norms and like ideas about what women can and can't do and like technical prowess. So um, I wanted to make a project speaking about her specifically, just as like my my tribute. <laughs> um, so that that EP that I made was specifically about the the very first video game in which she appears, and as I sort of imagine it, what it would be like to be an intergalactic bounty hunter running around in search of a giant disembodied brain. <laughs> uh, for the record, I'm terrible at Metroid. I just wanted to it's put hard. That out there. It's, it's a hard. It's game. a very like. The whole franchise is very, very, very difficult. Like I always at my shows, folks will like confess to me that they haven't beaten the games. And I'm like, that's OK. They're very, very difficult. No one is holding it against you. <laughs> now, once you own this identity of Samus and you put out this relatively nerdcore yeah. record, did it feel like a crutch at all going forward? Or did you mm -hmm. feel like you were still owning it? I felt like I... I imposed a, a boundary around myself at first, like in the sense that I would go to, I started getting invited to perform at like conventions and, and things like that. And that was really neat. Um, but then I felt like I would say, okay, well, I have to perform all of my Metroid tracks because I'm here at this video game convention. And that's what these folks want to hear. And that's the most important part of, you know, my identity in this space. And then I had to take a step back and think about, the fact that I'm a nerd and a geek and I have all of these different experiences and that's not the only thing that matters to me. And so why am I like putting everyone else in a box in a way that I wouldn't want to be? So then I started trying to perform tracks that had nothing to do with video games, that had nothing to do with any of the stuff um, that was sort of being celebrated there. And I remember that those were the songs that people would afterwards come up to me and say, thank you for performing that. I'm going through this or I'm going through that. And I hadn't heard somebody say that um, or express that they were dealing with that as well or whatever the topic I was talking about. So I think after I was able to recognize my own identity as like a complex person, who a geek is a part of that, <laughs> um, then I, I kind of broke that, that um, kind of 
I broke past that, those labels that I was kind of projecting onto other folks. This might be a little far reaching for mm -hmm. a Cornell Young Alumni podcast, but it strikes me that that evolution and that conversation you're creating with the music is very similar to the conversation that's going on in Comic-Cons in general, mm -hmm. where over, for those listeners who aren't familiar, they... Whether this is true or not, they were seen as predominantly male, predominantly mm -hmm, white for mm -hmm, mm -hmm. decades. And it really only has been in the past five or 10 years or so where people of diverse backgrounds, women have mm -hmm. been like, we like this stuff too, you yeah. guys. Yeah. And uh, coming here from New York at New York Comic Con, there was a palpable turn from the first year to yeah. the second year to the third year where you started to see that audience become more comfortable and turn over. Has that do you think that was a parallel? Is that something that allowed you to branch out the type of music you were doing in your performances at these cons? I think, yeah, I think that um, I, so I didn't really grow up going to a lot of conventions. So my first like encounters with these conventions has been as an artist. So it's hard for me to, to speak on sort of the changes that have happened because I've been a part of it, I would say maybe like really performing at conventions maybe the past four or five years. Um, but I do, it's, it's amazing the response that I'll get from, from other women, from other black folks will come up to me and say like, oh my God, I'm so happy that you're here. Like, I'm so, so happy that you're here. And like, they'll describe to me how the year before they didn't see anyone who looked like them. And then the year after that, they're starting to see more people and more people. And that, that definitely empowers me. That definitely makes me feel like, um, you know, it's, important for me to be there it's important for me to be there taking up space and you know as a reminder if anything that um you know there needs to be more folks like me who are on the stage i shouldn't be the only person who's performing there and speaking about my experience and correct me if i'm wrong but i think this has paid off really nicely for you in the outside the convention world when i yeah. went to listen to your stuff on spotify the top tracks I think it was only the third or fourth song where you dropped mentioning the TARDIS and then yeah. the fifth song where you dropped mentioning Mother Brain. Um, so have you seen have you seen your fan base grow beyond that those nude crawler folks over the past couple of years? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the neat thing about um, what it is that I've I've been able to do or I'm, what I'm trying to do is that it brings together all of these folks from like different universes that I never imagined kind of just by virtue of talking about the things that I love, all the things that I love and like one album, so many folks will start to, to interact who wouldn't otherwise. So the example that I often use is I have a song called Mae Jemison on my um, project that's devoted to talking about Metroid and she's the, the first black woman in outer space and like a real hero for me and a Cornell alum actually. Oh. I just remembered because I've seen her speak a bunch of times. <laughs> yeah, I'm like obsessed with Mae Jemison, um, a Dr. Mae Jemison. And um, so I referenced her in the song and I had folks saying to me, you know, like, I love Metroid. I didn't know who she was. And I listened to your project. And so I looked her up. And she's amazing. And now I'm obsessed with her, too. And I've had on the other side of things, um, there's actually... Um, a professor at Cornell, uh, Russell Rickford, his daughter, um, his daughter and his wife, they emailed me and said, we started playing Metroid because he went to one of your shows and, and we were really um, excited by this concept of this, this woman kind of going through outer space and kicking behind. So um, it's been this nice intersection of all these different things and folks are able to explore other stuff through 
through just me talking about what I like and don't like. <laughs> I was reading an interview with you, and it seems like beyond the nerd stuff, one major influence, at least initially on you, was Kanye. Is that yeah. correct? Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So I, prior to hearing Kanye, who performed at Slope Day, I remember because I think I skipped really? school. <laughs> I was in high school. It was a year before I started I think it was, yeah, it must have been 2003 or 2004. Um, and I was like, oh, I'm so excited that I live in Ithaca because I can go to this <laughs> this event and see Kanye West before he was Kanye West. Um, and uh, so prior to seeing him, I was making beats on my laptop. My older brother had taught me this practice and I was making kind of weird video gamey songs that didn't have a categorization. I would go to school, I would show them to my friends. They were like, this is really weird, what is this? And I didn't know what it was, so I was like, I don't know. So I had these CDs, like I would burn my, my songs on them and show them to certain folks. Um, but then when I first heard Kanye West, he was the first artist that I had ever, our first hip hop artist that I'd ever heard who was just talking about being anxious about going to college or like, some, some of these like concerns that I had felt, you know, I was just about to go to school and and I I was scared and didn't know what this experience was going to be like. And I felt like, oh, you know, I had never felt like hip hop was a space that I as an artist could inhabit until I heard him kind of open that doorway by talking about like, oh, I'm, you know, I don't want to work at the Gap anymore or whatever. <laughs> you know, these things that I felt like really resonated with with where I was at. So I think what he was talking about in that first project in College Dropout, it really empowered me to feel like, okay, my experience is valid. I can talk about the things that, that make me anxious or make me excited and somebody out there will connect with it. Not to get too far down this hole, but yeah. Kanye has become kind of a controversial figure, oh, I yeah, think. Absolutely. What are, what are your feelings about it now? What are your feelings about him now? Ugh, Kanye. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. I have such a, like challenging relationship with Kanye because I appreciate what he's been able to do as far as pushing the conversation around what it means to be a genius, what it means to be intelligent, what intelligence looks like, and that it can take on all these different forms. I think he's always um, consistently says, like, I deserve to be here, you know, in the pantheon, with all these other great artists. And, and I think in particular, you know, Hip hop artists have had to fight this fight over and over again. This is music. This is an art form from, you know, the Grammys to even recently, I, I forget who it was. Somebody said that like sampling is not music or it's not an art form or something to that effect. So I feel like in particular, hip hop artists continuously have to fight for their their space and their recognition. And, and Kanye has been sort of at the forefront of that and saying what I do is is art and should be respected as such in, in the same same regard. But I also think that he like doesn't think before he speaks. <laughs> so he'll just he'll just, you know, stream of consciousness. This is what I'm I'm thinking, this is what I'm going through. And and on the one hand, he acknowledges the tremendous um uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The influence that he has. But on the other hand, it's like he doesn't recognize his influence because if you're just your little stream of consciousness on Twitter means something to people. It affects people in real ways and, and it affects how people make decisions about their lives. So um, it's it's hard because I'm, I'm frustrated that he at this moment, I feel like isn't using his platform as responsibly as I would if 
millions of people were <laughs> listening to my every single word. Someday. Someday it'll happen. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as you've continued your musical journey beyond Kanye, beyond the uh, just generally Metroid and yeah. nerd stuff, what have your other musical influences been? Oh, so I, I love Bjork very much. Um, I remember actually a friend of mine in high school showed me her music for the first time. I'd heard her before, but I never really like pursued or, or tried to to check her out that much. But I just loved how how weird she was, how unapologetically weird she she is and was as an artist. It was really freeing to see someone who not only, I think, presented herself in all of these different ways, but also like stylistically her music all of her songs are so different. Her projects span like the full spectrum. She has a song that's kind of like show tunesy. She has music that's like hardcore electronic. And it's just so many different things are a part of her music. And she has a really, I think as a lyricist, is really brilliant and beautiful too. So I think as a teenager, I didn't quite understand all of that or know why I was so drawn to her. But now as an adult, I can say, oh, okay, because she was she was just being her weird self. And I love that and wanted to, to emulate that. So definitely Bjork. I really love Daft Punk. Um, the first cassette that I ever got was a Daft Punk cassette. Um, and I just, again, I love that they were, were kind of weird artists. But what I really appreciated about them was that they made instrumental music and um I wanted to make beats, but I didn't I didn't know how. And so for them, listening to their music kind of taught me how to make all of the layers that go into making a beat. Like, oh, now the, that hi-hat sound is dropped out. Oh, now that hi-hat sound is back in. Or, oh, that bass line is, is gone. Oh, it's, it's getting louder. Those kinds of things. Without sort of a voice on top of it, it allowed me to figure out what goes into making a beat a beat. So I would say those two um, are probably my biggest musical influences after now, going and getting a degree at Cornell mm -hmm. would be great, and having a musical career is great. Yeah. And then you went back to Cornell for a PhD. <laughs> yeah. What drove you to do that? Well, I so after I had finished Teach for America, I um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I wasn't sure where I wanted to be. I didn't feel like I. I'm a risk averse person, <laughs> so I was like, I don't know if I'm ready to just you know, dive into this musician life. And, and plus, I think my parents would have killed me if I had just <laughs> run in full, you know, full speed ahead as, as an artist um, without sort of, you know, having thought through things. So when I thought about what I wanted to do or what I liked, I like learning. I like learning a lot. And I had enjoyed um, my time at Cornell, especially in science and technology studies. Um, I wrote a senior thesis about kind of digital audio workstations, digital music production. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, I can, you know, talk about this thing that's really important to me and I can think about it with the folks that I had already thought a little bit about it with. So um, I emailed Trevor Pinch, who's my advisor, and we kind of chatted about, I, I asked him some questions and then I applied and decided to come back. And so my, my music hadn't really, when I came back to grad school, I remember I was like, okay, I'm done with music. I'm hanging my hat up. I'm just focusing on this. Um, but that it didn't work out that way, <laughs> obviously. But I was I was pretty much at the time committed to just focusing on my grad school life. But at the same time, looking over what you were studying for your PhD, it seems like it did feed your yeah. music. It did feed your interests a little bit. Can you talk about what you were studying there? Yeah. So when I was there in undergrad, as I mentioned, I studied digital audio workstations and, and networks. And specifically, I was interested in, in questions around like gender and access to 
um, information around producing beats, those kinds of things. Um, primarily, I, I was interested in the fact that so much of the knowledge around beat making and digital music production is informal. Like, in, I think now it's easier to find like a class or a place where you can go and learn, you know, how to make beats on your computer. But I think at that time and, and prior to that, it wasn't even a thing that I had thought about it until my older brother sat me down and taught me like, this is how you do this. And so I kept thinking, well, if someone doesn't have a savvy older brother <laughs> with a laptop, you know, or um, doesn't see themselves represented or doesn't feel like this is a space that they can be in, how are they supposed to get into this? So I was really curious about that question. Um, and so the STS department opened that up to me as a, as a thing that I could possibly explore. And so when coming back, I recognize that, okay, I can continue to pursue um, things that I'm interested in, uh, that I'm interested in in my sort of personal life and, and as far as uh, things that I want to see change in the world more broadly, but I can also use my identity as a musician to, to get into certain spaces. Um, so my dissertation is now about um, the politics of studios and, and kind of com community studios in, in like low-income areas and um, initially, that project came to be from my um, experience at the Southside Community Center in Ithaca, New York, at a, at a studio that's located there. And I remember seeing the studio and wanting to pursue research about, um, you know, how people are interacting in studio spaces and making music in studios. And then it evolved into this whole project. And part of why I was there, even learned about it, was because I was a musician. So it all sort of like leads back. <laughs> Not to make you repeat your entire dissertation, but <laughs> what have you learned about it? What have you learned about these local community center uh, style studios? I've learned that it's really challenging, that there's so many different interests that are balanced in a space that's both a community resource and a commercial studio space, or one that's aspiring to be a commercial studio space. That their desires often around like professionalizing a space and having it seem like a quote unquote legitimate studio space, but also that can serve as a barrier to entry for folks. And so there's always this, this tension around, I think, um, having the space be one that is read and interpreted as like a real, you know, legit studio, but then also one where people feel free to experiment and try new things and do weird stuff. Um, and, and that the, the kind of imperatives of keeping those studios alive is often a challenge as well. Like, you know, how do we talk about it in grant applications? How do we, who is going to fund this? And can we spin this as an endeavor that is, you know, purely about expression for these kids? Or how do we, what's the sort of best angle and how does that feed into the way that the studio actually functions? So. That wasn't a great answer, <laughs> but that's kind of where my headspace is as I'm trying to work through my dissertation. Sure. And you don't, it's okay. You don't need to actually give it right now. You're not going to defend you. it. Surprise, <laughs> we have a bunch of professors no! here. You have to do it right now. Uh, I, I am curious, though, because there's been so many discussions lately in particular about public works versus private works. Yeah. Do you feel like you found, should there... This is a ridiculous thing to say because there's always going to be a problem with funding for the arts. Absolutely. Anybody who has ever seen a movie set as a high school, as set at a high school, knows that's true. Yes. But um, should there be more public studios? Hmm. I, I absolutely think so. I absolutely feel like that. That would be that opening up more spaces for people to not, not even just 
go in and record, but to like be in the studio space, I think is, is important to know that that's a thing that a place that you can access. Like, I think for me, one of my biggest aims or goals has been to show people, give, provide people with a sense of possibility. Um, and so I think in having more studio spaces and more sort of public spaces where people engage with studio technologies, it's not necessarily saying, oh, you too should be an artist, but that there's that sense of possibilities opened up for them now. This is a place that I'm allowed to inhabit. And perhaps that, that pushes them in one direction or the other. But um, I recently attended a, a conference, or it's called an unconference because there wasn't an agenda that was set for it. Um, and it was really cool. It was at the Library of Congress. One of my friends, she brought together all these folks um, to talk about decolonizing Mars. And so there were musicians, there were scientists, there were, it was just like the coolest thing ever. Um, but one of the folks there in one of the panels that we, we discussed in that space was talking about how having, um, was talking about public science and ha having the importance of having things like microscopes be accessible to folks. They had a project where they just brought microscopes out to sidewalks and had people kind of look through. Um, and folks were really engaged and excited to talk about the things that they saw and um, their connections and relationships to it. But that only happened by having the microscope be out there on the sidewalk, by having folks feel like, oh, this is something I can like engage with. So yeah, absolutely. More studios for everyone. <laughs> Now that not that you've put music away, like you said, you put up the hat and then took it down. Yeah. Uh, but it sounds like you've been talking about music, you've been writing about music. Mm -hmm. uh, but what about writing music? What about performing music? Are you still getting back into that? What's where are you at right now? So I'm actually working on my next project right now. So um, it's been a really it has actually worked out very, very nicely in the sense that I was able to tour a whole bunch last year. Um, and at the top of this year, I toured a little bit. And then this summer, I'm, I'm commuting between here and Philly, um, where I'm teaching. I'm teaching here at NYU and working on my dissertation. And it's been nice because I get to teach about stuff that I'm writing about and thinking about. So it's actually just like selfishly my way of working through all my ideas. Um, but uh, in that process, I, I am also trying to work on my next project. So the hope is that on the other side of the summer, so maybe September, October, I'll really start to put the pieces together on that and then release the next thing in 2019 and see what happens. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> if you can talk about it yet, but are there any specific musical influences for the upcoming project? I would say that it's um, much, uh, much more chill than my last project. Mm -hmm. So I feel like in my last project, I very, I had a lot of things to say and. I said them very intensely and very loudly and like with a lot of passion and energy. And I think now that that project is out in the universe, um, and I named the project Pieces in Space as sort of a way of talking about how when you, you make something, it, it you know goes into the universe and then it's not yours anymore. And now I'm interested in just being more introspective, diving deeper into myself and how I'm processing the world. and. Um, so it's a lot more relaxed, even the, the BPM, like the, the tempos are a lot <laughs> slower. I would say it's like a really more, more chill project. Cool. Uh, if people wanted to check out your albums or listen to your stuff, where would they go? They can go to samusmusic.com. It's S-A-M-M-U-S music.com. Cool. 
Naga, thank you so much for being here. Thank, thank you, you so much me. for chatting. Yeah. And you guys, thank you for listening to Fresh from the Hill, Inside Stories of Noteworthy Cornellians. Again, if you want to check out the website, alumni.cornell.edu slash youngalumni, or you can go to the Facebook page, Cornell Young Alumni Programs, to find out about upcoming events, news, volunteer opportunities, and more. And be sure to subscribe, like the podcast, let all of your friends know. Thanks, everybody. Music from Fresh from the Hill was written, produced, and recorded by Kia Albertson Rogers, class of 2014. You can contact him at koa3 at cornell.edu.